Hi. Oh, okay. There we go. Um, so. Jessica is, is not going to read. Um, I refuse to read. She refuses to read. I'm sorry. Um, so we're, we're just going to kind of get right into it. And for those of you who have not read the book, um, it is about what I would describe as an office from hell um, that, that uh, centers on a woman who is in her early 30s, right? She's past 30 but less than 35 um, and she has found herself working for this foundation um, run by how would how how to best describe Leora Infinitus she is a reality television star and former sitcom actress who has a lot of money and doesn't know what to do with it so she has a foundation obviously um, and I just want to read this quote from Emily Gould's review of Jessica's book in book forum. Um, from the opening pages of Breaking Case of Emergency, Jessica Winter demonstrates a knack for rendering the surreal, almost trippy quality of being trapped in a very bad meeting. The kind where time stops and everyone seems to be saying the opposite of what they mean. Um, so Jessica, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about this uh, feeling of being trapped in the very bad meeting that you capture so well. Um, yeah, I, I hope I hope I don't capture it in a way that you know summons up traumatic memories for anyone who's been trapped in a very bad meeting. I liked how Emily capitalized the V, the B, and the M in a very bad meeting because it is a very specific genre of experience. Um, I mean, the the foundation in the book is called Lift, the Leora Infinitus Foundation, um, L I F T, not L Y F T, and um, it. It's kind of vaguely centered around women's empowerment or feminist empowerment or something. No one is really sure, uh, not least Leora Infinitus. She isn't sure either. Um, and I think when an organization lacks a clear sense of a mission or a, lacks a clear sense of what any given person in that environment is supposed to be doing and what their goals are, um, you end up talking around things rather than, like, no one in that situation tends to have you know, the, the wherewithal to say, what are we doing? Why are we here? What right. is this? And so instead you have these, you know, just good, crazy filibuster conversations and meetings that don't go anywhere and a lot of memos get written. Um, I have had proximity to these sorts of situations. Um, and um, that was what I was trying to capture. And I think my protagonist is someone who lacks a strong sense of self. I think that's her central battle. I mean, she has plenty of battles to fight but I think that's that's the big one for her and so centering her in a place that also lacks a sense of self felt to me like the worst possible thing I could do to her and therefore a good premise for a book yeah I mean I I was kind of constantly wanting to shake Jen um, and you know have her like talk back to Karina um, who is her boss her direct boss who is kind of a monster yes um yeah she's passive aggressive she's undermining she bullies jen um and she really seemed like the extreme version of the horrible of a horrible boss um 
can you talk a little bit about what you were drawing on, if anything, for Karina? Yeah, of course. Um, I think I I wanted to, and I you know we should add the caveat that having a like a relatively nice white collar job in New York City in 2009 would be for a lot of people a very privileged position, and I, I don't want to lose sight of that as we have this conversation. So you know with that framework in place. Um, yeah, I wanted to create a really bad boss and a bad boss who would whose behavior and whose actions would underscore um, the protagonist's sense of, of privacy and her own sense of physical failings. Jen is um, trying to get pregnant. She's struggling with infertility. And she's working in a place that is obsessed with quote-unquote authenticity and obsessed with being honest and being open and just let it all hang out. And um, I think if you work in a really healthy environment with healthy human beings, that can be fine as long as it's not coerced. But in this environment, it's coerced. And mm-hmm. it's coerced most um, blatantly in Karina, who is her boss, who wants to know, why were you 12 minutes late to work today? You obviously had a doctor's appointment. Why don't you tell me about that? There, there's a lot of that kind of, what are you hiding from me going on in this environment? Because the, the people in this foundation mistake secrecy and shame for a sense of privacy. Um, And I think in a larger sense, there are just a lot of workplaces that... And I'm extremely fortunate that I do not work in one of them. I work in the opposite of one, where... um, it's not respected that people have bodies and minds and lives outside of the office. And and this whole love what you do, do what you love thing, I think can be really toxic where you're, you're supposed to give all of yourself to your work and your colleagues. I don't think that you should be obligated to do that, even though that's kind of a feeling that's um, really taken way too much mm-hmm. hold, I think, in the culture. So I think that was what I was trying to bring to an extreme in Karina. And why did you make the entire workplace female? I mean, I think part of it was just prescriptive. Like, there's a lot of decisions that, I mean, you know this, you just finished a really awesome-sounding novel. Like, there's all these decisions that you have to make, and the best decisions that you can make just kind of, like, whittle away other decisions. And so making it all one thing, making it homogenous in that way was one decision that kind of simplified and clarified things. Um, I was just saying to someone else that um, there, at one point when I was writing the book, I wanted the book to like be this kind of extreme manifestation of like the Bechdel test where there would be only like it would be like the women like Claire Booth's uh, play where uh, you only saw women men were only talked about and uh, and that sort of in the writing of the book that conceit which I was so um, wedded to at the beginning it sort of became a gimmick and it wasn't really serving the book um, there were all these scenes between Jen and her husband that I really wanted and I was like how can I have the scene but still have an all-female book. Maybe he could be on the phone and we could hear his voice and not see him. It's like, this is stupid. Just, like, give this up. But I think possibly the palimpsest of let's do a book where only women talk and you only see women is, is maybe still visible there Um, and maybe one of the ways it's visible is is in the all-female workplace Um, so you brought up Jen's husband um, and so let's talk about Jen's husband a little bit (laughs) Um, so Jen's husband is a a teacher and he has the summers off um, and he doesn't really do anything 
in the summers besides go running it seems he goes running <laughs> yeah um, he reads books yeah and he and Jen don't have a lot of money they live in not Ditmas Park um, which is where I live just <laughs> <laughs> where Jessica lives um, but it's Flatbush it's Flatbush but real estate agents like to call it Ditmas Park it's not Ditmas Park um and so, you know, you very early in the book, you see kind of these strands of resentment that Jen has, has towards Jim. Um, oh, also, sidebar, all the couples have alliteration yes. names. Yeah, it was my homage to girls. Oh. <laughs> nice. Um, so It wasn't, actually. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it had nothing to do with girls. It was not her hom- homage to girls. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, their relationship. Mm-hmm. And you know what what it means for Jen to be married to this guy who it seems like she doesn't really respect. Um, oh, really? You think so? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, that's yeah. really interesting. I, I mean, I thought I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, she had. Well, I don't. How, I don't want to get too spoilery. No. Oh, we can totally get spoilery. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, okay. So, uh, living in New York City is weird because um, there's a lot of money, and you don't know where the money is coming from necessarily. Like all these bills are getting paid. These apartments are being lived in. These this travel is being taken. But how? Is it a trust fund? Does the person next to you make way more money than you do? And, like, you just haven't figured it out yet? Like, what does their spouse do? Is there an aunt involved? Like, there's this... uh, But you don't talk about it. Like, I'm embarrassed talking about it right now. You're not allowed to talk about it. You're not supposed to to say any of these things. And so it was interesting to me to... Um, try to talk about it in a book, but in the way that people don't talk about it. You yeah. talk around it, you find synonyms or euphemisms for it, and it's all kind of sheepish and embarrassed and like, oh my god, let's stop talking about this. Um, and that comes to the fore with Jen because you know she has wealthy friends, as anyone in New York, well, as a lot of people in New York City do, and there are all these social um, stratifications between her and her friends um, that weren't necessarily visible in college or in their 20s, but once people start getting married and they start buying apartments and they start having children, those differences, um, those levels of of status and privilege become very visible in ways that can be jarring if you have chosen to be kind of blind to the fact that they exist at all. Um, And I, I think that once those start becoming visible, Jim's lack of traditional ambition or his ease with being relaxed and his ease with not commodifying every second of his day and just being himself and being a person in the world go from being attributes and assets and things that helped Jen fall in love with him to being why aren't you doing anything? Like, right. why aren't you making more money? Like, why aren't you being like other people who I didn't marry? Um, and I don't think that that translates as lack of respect. So it's heartbreaking and fascinating to me that you think that. <laughs> but like, but that's the thing. I mean, I wanted, I really, really, really wanted to write a book that had lots of blank space in it, and you could decide, you know, what your judgments of these people were and whether or not all the endings were happy and whether or not people really loved and respected each other. So I'm, I am genuinely happy and sad to hear that. <laughs> um, you have this great passage um, 
about how everything leading up to that point where um, it becomes clear that certain people are wealthier than others is like summer camp. Yeah, should we read that yeah, part? Yeah, let's okay. read that part. One moment. <laughs> find it. Um, it's going to take me a minute to find it. So the thing about Jim... Yeah. Um, you know, I just... I. So Jen is just not... She feels... And Jessica... If you feel that this mis- this interpretation is totally off, no, please no, say so. It. But she feels stuck um, in a lot of ways. And to me, her relationship with Jim was just like another manifestation of her feeling stuck um, and feeling frustrated and powerless um, that Jim was not doing what she kind of passive-aggressively wanted him to do because she doesn't really articulate it until the end pretty mm-hmm. much um yeah they she has all this like burning rage inside of her yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think i think a, i think a lot of the book is about people who are unable or unwilling to communicate with each other which is a really toxic thing in a workplace it's a to- i mean like i'm stating the obvious it's a toxic thing in a relationship and a friendship um but i also think like you know I, I wanted people to want to wring her neck sometimes. Like, I wanted Jen to feel like a friend. You know, I wanted her to feel like someone you really knew, who you really loved and cared about, and, you know, wanted to be with as a friend for the rest of your life, but who you just couldn't, like, couldn't understand sometimes why she was behaving the way that she did, and you, you would want to wring her neck sometimes, and you would feel like Jim sometimes mm-hmm. around her. Um, you know, she's not necessarily an easy person to be with and part of that ironically is because she tries so fucking hard to be an easy person yeah and she doesn't want to be a burden she doesn't want to be a burden she's like oh my god i'm so sorry to put you out like she's just like that all the time and i i have those those trappings within myself too she's always thanking people she's always apologizing for herself and um all of that deflection and all of that um keeping silent I think builds up and builds up and then it explodes yeah um let me just find the summer camp part um let's see should I start at the self-pity yeah part okay um this is right after Jen finds out that one of her friends is secretly rich (laughs) as one does yeah I mean this is this has totally happened um Jen sat down on one of the empty benches in the empty courtyard. On her collar, she could almost smell the sour breath of her own self-pity. Her self-pity subsisted in part on simple carbohydrates and on the salt mined from the sodium-rich instant soups of a drafty childhood. But it was mostly self-sustaining, feeding on itself, and apparently inescapable genetic susceptibility to self-pity being one of the major reasons Jen pitied herself. She closed her eyes against the yellowish orbital streaks ringing around her head and submitted to self-pity's embrace, tilting her face toward the slanting winter sun, inhaling and exhaling. She and her self-pity knew now, as the pleasant people gathered in a secret room must have known all along, that early adulthood for most of her college peers was a kind of summer camp, a character-building exercise in make-believe, a hope chest of nostalgia, a lakeside idol that marked the shimmering threshold before real life began. The cramped, subsidized housing where Meg and Mark, her friends, had lived for nearly two years during law school, throwing monthly four-course dinner parties at which half the guests ate in the tiny kitchen and the other half eight in the tiny bedroom, rotating guest by guest at regular intervals to hybridize conversation and interaction, that was summer camp. 
When Lauren Riley, daughter of another partner at Meg's father's law firm, moved into her boyfriend's one-window studio to paper over the year between when she finished law school and her boyfriend started medical school, that was summer camp. Pam and Paolo's mildewy, transient, spilled studio space was summer camp. Meg's semi-annual clothing swaps were summer camp. Pam's champion sweatshirts were summer camp. And it goes on like that for a little while, maybe too long. Um, Meeting your best friends in college was dangerous if only because college was the great leveler. Everyone in college lives like a college student. Nobody necessarily knows who's on financial aid and who's not and how much. Nobody would ever ask such things. The stratifications are hidden so well as to be forgotten. Marriage and childbearing and the ceremonies attendant upon them also commemorated the reemergence of those stratifications for those who'd ignored or discounted them. <laughs> so I the 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 moment I knew that I that I had the, like the right agent like I'd already signed with my agent but the the moment I was like yeah was I was just telling my friendship on this this morning was um we were meeting with an editor and um my agent Claudia Ballard said you know reading this book sometimes it makes me uncomfortable and she like made this flinching motion and I was just like yes I really want that um, for better or worse um, so I think we're going to take some questions actually from the audience if there are any Hi. yes I'm visiting from Brooklyn <laughs> I live in New York what is to be done about this stratification what do you do when you realize that your friend has an apartment because their parents put a down payment down for them there's nothing you can do you read a novel <laughs> um, no and it's I mean like it, there's, there's, there's nothing to be done about it and it's, and it's not that big of a deal. It's like not, you know, like as problems go in the world, it's like one billion or something. Um, but it's, you know, it's a weird feeling. You, you know, you feel caught out by it. You feel like you've been walking through your life blind or something. And, and yeah, but now there's nothing you can do. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, of course. So the writing process. Um, how did you, you know, you get into this character, you get into this angst, this frustration, this pain, this despair, this feeling being stuck, you might spend days, hours, minutes there. What did you do to ground yourself? To just, I mean, how long would you, when you stayed there, when you realized, how did, what did you do to keep yourself from staying there too long and get back into the world? No, it's, it's a totally fair question. I, I never internalized any of it. It was just like a set of problems to be solved. Like once I had figured out what the book was, it was just like, how do I get from A to B to C to D? Um, I also wrote the book really quickly. So I think that helped a lot too. Like I had a, dead, I had a deadline in mind and I just wrote to that deadline. Um, so it was it was sort of a workmanlike way of going about it, but it I think it also left me less room for angst or something. I don't know. How did you write startup? Um, I I mean I, I physically wrote it in the morning mm-hmm. and on the weekends um, mostly, mm-hmm. and then I took two months off mm-hmm. and finished most of it. Um, but I didn't. 
yeah that, I mean that was that was pretty much how yeah. I wrote it um I don't think I wrote it as fast as as you it sounds like you wrote yours pretty fast but um I mean I know people who literally like they set a timer in the morning 60 minutes they wake up you know before they go to work or before the kids are up or whatever and they just write for, I could never do that um, I need like big blocks of time mm-hmm. to work and like circle around something and procrastinate a little bit before I get into it. Um, but that level of discipline, that kind of like six to seven done, is extremely appealing to me, and I would like to access it at some point. <laughs> it sounds like you might have. Um, well, I did. I did do that um, for a few months. Mm -hmm. And then, so it was interesting when I actually had time off work to have these big blocks of time where I could let myself sort of procrastinate and think more big picture about my book, Mm -hmm. but we're not talking about my my book right now. We're talking about your book. Um, so yeah. I hope that answers your question. (laughs) Hi, Rishi. Um, So that pragmatic way of, of writing, of just like having problems to solve for the novel, I definitely think it did. And I, I don't I know I don't think it's a coincidence that I started writing this book right around the time I started working for Slate, um, which is an online magazine. And there's just there's just no margin for messing around. Like you have to sit down and write and like your writers have to sit down and write and you have to edit them and you have to like get that stuff online immediately. And there's like there's just no space for um, like you just have to get it down and not worry about it being perfect. And the thing is, if you get down and not worry about it being perfect, it's going to be 95% there anyway. And sometimes if you torture yourself about it, make, making it perfect, it makes it worse. So I think that gave me like a freedom that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I think by the same token, I think I had never written fiction before. I was in my mid-30s before I started writing fiction. And it had never occurred to me to write fiction before. And um, something about finding a total totally new way of writing really rejuvenated writing nonfiction for me too. Like it just made everything more exciting. It's like, Oh, there's this whole other, I don't know if you had the same yeah, experience. No, definitely. And I think also have coming also from an online media background, yeah. you do learn that, um, what's that thing that, that people say? Like, done is better than perfect or something like that. Done is better than perfect. Don't. <laughs> Jim Pana, I used to, I used to be colleagues with Jim Ponawazic, the New York Times TV critic, and he would always say, um, don't let, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something which is like, yeah, always in yeah. My head. So you, you become, I think you become less precious about your writing, um, which I think is really important and um, kind of getting over that psychological hump of being inhibited is really important and just producing and then thinking as long as I have something I can go back to it Um, but you need to have that something that reminds me actually the best writing advice I've ever heard was someone help me pronounce his name Zizek Slavo Zizek did I get that right okay Um, there's a documentary about him and he says someone asks him about his writing process and he says I don't write I take notes and then I edit the notes and I just skip the writing altogether and that really stayed with me and whenever I'm stuck I just I think about that and I've like never read his writings and don't really know how to pronounce his name but um, I'm grateful to him for that (laughs) 
Yeah, I think if you're if you're feeling stuck, the best thing to do is just start writing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, just blather and nonsense. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, just having something to go back to, however horrible it is, yeah. is reassuring. Yeah. yeah. And work for a blog for like six months and then <laughs> you'll, you'll be like oh okay <laughs> yeah yeah um other questions I have a question so the book is so satirical and it's funny and there's this sort of ridiculous workplace that the heroine is kind of mired within but then at the same time there's the story of the heroine's um fertility journey which is really very sad and very frustrating and I just wondered how you kind of manage to get those tones like it seems like things could that that's a it's a very hard balance to strike and I wondered if that was something that was on your mind as you were writing to sort of go between the really comic pieces and then also you know after the thing that happens um how to sort of bring the reader back from that yeah um the I'll we're among friends here. I will spoil the exact center. Of the, the, the exact, exact, exact center of the book is that um, the protagonist Jen has a miscarriage, and uh, it's a desperately wanted um, pregnancy, and uh, it's fairly. she's fairly progressed in the pregnancy it's not an early miscarriage per se and uh, I was aware that it was a mostly comic book but like this thing had to happen it was one of the first scenes in the book I I wrote actually like I wrote the end first and I wrote the beginning and then like there were a few scenes where I was like okay I have to like get this down because this is like one of the milestones in the book and that was one of them um and I guess what I was worried about that like I was worried I mean that scene I think if I remember correctly goes directly into some ridiculous office situation right and and I was worried about it being jarring but I also think that this is a really cheesy thing to say but I isn't life just like that like something awful happens and then something stupid happens and you laugh about it and like not that fiction is a documentary or it should like be some kind of verite representation of real life but I I didn't mind that as something real lifey that I could try to capture in the book um I make the mistake of reading my Goodreads reviews which no one should ever do and people have commented on that it's just like you know how do you go from like these funny scenes to to that but um I don't know. I mean, that's just... I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not giving you a very articulate answer. I was worried about it, but I didn't know what to do about it, so I just did it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it works. I mean, it doesn't feel like you just completely veered off a cliff in terms of tone. Like it somehow you maintain that balance. I mean, I guess one thing about it is that um, they never talk about it. Like, the word miscarriage is not anywhere in the book and in fact I was just talking to someone who asked me like what's the thing that happens in the middle of the book like what is that and I'm like she has a miscarriage like oh it's called Um, they call it the thing the thing that happened um and um you know the the book is about someone who can't express herself who's afraid of expressing herself who's sheepish about expressing herself and she can't even come up with language to talk you know she has a whole set of euphemisms about fertility she has a whole set of euphemisms about people she works with she has a whole like employee lingo that she has with her best friend at work Daisy um, but she can't even bring herself to say this um, I think is a window 
into her psyche that might be useful and instructive. But I also think, like in a in a larger sense, that it's just um, it's part of this whole taboo that we have around miscarriage. Like people just don't miscarriages happen all the time. Women have miscarriages all the time. I've had a miscarriage. No one ever talks about it. Um, and I guess this was a way of talking about it, but not, or like talking about it in the way that we talk about it, which is to talk around it or ignore it. Um, yeah, the, the Karina's reaction to it uh, was like a, a very painful. I found that to be a very painful scene because she seems she seems sort of sympathetic, but you're also like, what is this in service of? And then you're like, oh, it's in service of getting her to come back to work like yeah. the next day. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Yeah, and um, you know, I I know from um. You know, there was a there was a Dear Prudence letter that I read. It didn't inspire the book, but I I, I read it um, very early on in in writing the book. That um, totally broke my heart, but also kind of steadied me. And then, like you know, this stuff happens all the time. It was this was when Emily Offey was still Dear Prudence, and uh, this woman um, had written in to say, you know, I had a miscarriage, and my boss has been so awful about it. My boss's wife is now pregnant, and they're always talking to me about how we're not going to make the same mistakes you did, and we're not going to lose this pregnancy. And it was just like awful and unbelievable. And um, Emily's, you know, advice to her was wise and true, but she said, you know, just just as a reminder, um, never, ever, ever tell anyone you're pregnant until you absolutely have to, to avoid these sorts of situations. And the woman followed up and she said, I didn't tell anyone I was pregnant. They figured it out because I was sick all the time and I was missing work for doctor's appointments. Um, Which kind of, I think, underscored a flaw in Emily's argument, which kind of like reinforces the taboo around early pregnancy and miscarriage. Like, oh, just don't talk about it. I was like, well, why not? You know, like, why can't you make that decision for for yourself? But it also, um, and that you know, that's not a diss on Emily. Emily was a great dear Prudence, but um, uh, I I think that it it reminded me that this stuff happens and that a lot of bosses don't know how to deal with people having bodies that sometimes, you know, betray them. They, they don't know how to deal with people having lives outside the office, except as a function of, okay, great, when are you coming back to work? Um, so I, I just kept that in mind. Like, whenever I wanted to soften it a little bit, like, oh, is this too unrealistic? I, I just tried to remember that letter. <laughs> Let's please not end on this note. I hope yeah. someone else has a question. Please, <laughs> really another <bad>. question. <laughs> Zan, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I, my favorite part of the book, one of my favorite parts of the book, was the way that you write specifically about um, with the, the two women who are her closest friends mm-hmm. and about sort of the dynamics and complexities of like multi-person friendships. You know, where like uh, the observation, particularly that um, like in, in sort of a group of friends, everyone thinks they're the odd one out. You know, they see this, the commonalities between everyone else, and they're like, well, everyone else is like the artist, and I'm the weirdo. Or, like, everyone yeah. Is the, you know. Anyway, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those friendships and how you thought about them in the writing, um, and, and why two friends. You know, I think um, so. Jen, Pam, and Meg are the the, the best friends um, at the at the center of the book, and they're very different people. And um, I kind of wanted it to seem a little weird that they were friends because I, I, I have friendships like that where I'm just like, wait, why are we friends? This is awesome, but like, I can't remember why we're friends. You know, like I love that so much. Um, so there was a little bit of 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 that spirit that I wanted in it. Um, to be honest with you, the, the you know, aside from that resonance with my own life, those 
relationships were the hardest ones to write in the book for me because I did not want to be accountable to any of my friends for using our friendships as fodder or, you know, using, like it might have snuck in like subliminally without me realizing it, but I really, really didn't want to be using any of my friendships as material. And so I wanted to create three people whose relations to each other were, you know, really and truly made up. Um... And that was, those were the relationships and the scenes that I had the most anxiety about. Um, You know, I wanted them to be, uh, I wanted them to love each other to pieces and for us to realize how close they were in college and how hard they were fighting at times to stay as close as they were in college as their lives diverged, as, you know, their statuses in life diverged. Um, I, I wanted you to feel as flawed, I think, as two of them in particular are. I think one of them's, like, a better person than the other two, but I won't say which. Um, um, I I wanted you to love them, and I wanted you to root for them to stay friends. Um, And I guess that's what guided me. I don't know if I'm answering your question adequately. (laughs) What do you think Jen's doing right now? Um, oh my goodness. Uh, oh God, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think Jenna's doing right now? <laughs> I mean, I think she's made a lot of money from her portraits. Okay. Yeah. Like, I think this is going really well for her. <laughs> I'm like, so glad she, like, she has a whole thing and she's like Instagram famous. And yeah. I do. I think she's, she has a moderate level of Instagram fame. Yeah, yes, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm down with that. Um, well, I think that's a good note to end on. Okay. Um, so thank you all so Thanks much everybody. for coming. <laughs> You've been listening to the skylight books, author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.